Good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a good morning so far. Hope you had a good Christmas. Christmas week, maybe some time off uh, for some of you, some time with family. In my household, we've had that, and we've also had a lot of germs and (laughs) sickness, some double ear infections. It's been a lot, but um, we're here, and it's good. So today we are going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles now. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seats uh, in front of you or around you. Feel free to take that home with you. 1 Peter is towards the very end, the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept In heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So this was not meant to be a New Year's sermon necessarily, but that theme of hope has a lot to do with what we tend to think about around the New Year, doesn't it? I hope this year will be better than last year. Or maybe uh, I hope that this year will be a lot like last year. We have New Year's resolutions, right? I hope I can get to the gym more, I can get in the water more, I can see my family more, I can do this or do that. And we hope for these things, right? But it feels like a lot of times we tend to hope for the same things the next year, (laughs) right? And, And that's fine, right? But I think the reason is that we're people, right? We're humans. We are fallen creatures. We try hard. We may seek to be really disciplined, maybe muscle it out. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And when our hope is in our own ability, sometimes things just don't work out the way we want them to. But in this passage, we see a hope that's not grounded in our own ability. It's 
grounded in the absolute, fixed, perfect nature of God. And when that's what the hope is grounded in, we don't have to wonder if it's going to happen or if it's just a possibility. We can know that in reality, this, can, this hope can be the most secure uh, thing in our lives. So this letter, Peter begins by uh, addressing it in verse 1 to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And you don't really have to know where those places are. It's modern-day Turkey. But the important idea is this is a region of 135,000 square miles. Now maybe you're like me and you had no idea what that even meant. California is 165,000 square miles. So if you draw a line around Chico, maybe Redding, and work your way down, that's the sort of region that we're talking about. And, and Peter is writing to Christians from that region of the world, dispersed, and he's calling them a people, saying, you are elect exiles. So for a bunch of different reasons, there are people but they're scattered, elect exiles. These two words can feel like a contradiction, right? To be elect is to be called, to be chosen, right? We elect our political leaders. They're chosen by the people. They're called, right? But to be an exile is the opposite. It's to not be chosen, to not be picked, to be rejected, to be an outsider. So it feels like a contradiction, right? But it's actually not a contradiction at all. To be chosen or elect by God is, in fact, to be an exile of the world, isn't it? It's how it works. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. To be a part of one means that you're not a part of the other. It's not... It's, it's required, right? And this is a major theme in Peter's letter, and it's really important that we understand this. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the church, despite being scattered in the world, is a people. It's an identified group belonging to King Jesus. And and Peter wants us to see that, that we're a people that we've been called into God's possession for what purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. Okay, so let's remember that as we look at, at this passage. So we have three points for this sermon, hope's source, hope's guarantee, and hope's outcome. So let's spend a little time looking at the source of our hope. Where does this hope come from? 
the hope that we have as Christians comes from a merciful God. Blessed be God who has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. So the only reason that we have any hope at all is that God is a merciful God. So without God's mercy, we have no hope. This word mercy, it brings out this sense of uh, our own helplessness to do anything about our sinful condition, right? Mercy says that God saw us in our sinfulness, in our state of being spiritually lost, without any possibility of finding ourselves, He pitied us in mercy and did something about it. I hope you're grateful for that. For me personally, if I were to make up a God in my mind, what I think God might be like, I wouldn't create a God with this type of mercy. In my mind, I would probably create a God who looked at a helpless people and kind of looked over and was like, man, that stinks. (laughs) Like, shouldn't have done that. Right? That's, that's, and maybe that's not you, that's me. That's how I would make up or expect God to be, but that's not how God is. Mercy says that he sees us and he pities us and he moves to act for us, for our redemption. And the way that he moves and acts for our redemption is by causing us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's fascinating about this idea of being born again. It's kind of so um, well-known, even outside of the church, this idea of being a born-again Christian. It's actually only mentioned twice in the Bible. It's mentioned in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and here. So in John 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We see this idea in the New Testament in Ezekiel, where we see uh, the Lord say, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You must be born again, Jesus says. You must have God remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh if you are to see the kingdom of God. If you are to know God, if you're to serve him, if you're to love him, if you're to worship him, you must be born again. And that's kind of humbling, isn't it? That says that God has to do something in us. The, the theological term for this is regeneration. Regeneration is when God, through his spirit, takes our dead hearts and makes them live. Makes them live. That's what he's doing when he shows mercy in this way. He, he sees our dead hearts and he gives us life so that we might see the kingdom. I just want to mention that how this happens, I'm going to ask a lot of questions about how it happens, is not so much as important as the fact that it does happen. 
and what we do with it. Charles Octavius Booth says, we should have thought it strange if Mary and Martha, or the centurion of Capernaum, or the widow of Nain, had troubled Jesus with questions as to how he'd brought their dead back to life again. Like, cool, Jesus, but how'd you do it? No. It was enough to know that their loved ones had lived once more. But it was by no means necessary to know how he had raised them to life again. They knew them to be alive, and that was enough. So those who are raised from spiritual death and made partakers of spiritual life should not spend any moments of that new life asking useless questions, but rather busy themselves with devout thanks for the gift and in earnest efforts to make the most of their life for the glory of the gracious giver. I love that. Of course, it's good to think and ponder about the complexities and beauty and the mind of God, right? Um, But the most important thing is what we do with it, what we do with its reality, And if you are a Christian, I hope you can see how you have been born again, how you've been changed from the inside out, and how only God could do a work like that. We praise him for it. So what is this hope that we are talking about? It comes from God's mercy, but what is it? We see if we jump down to uh, to verse 4 and 5, to an inheritance... An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So our hope is in our inheritance. An inheritance is a thing of great value in the future, right? Great value that's to be received in the future. And for believers... There's a lot to this, but at its most basic level, Peter wants us to know, and he shows us at the end in verse 9, that this inheritance, this future valuable thing that we are to receive is the salvation of our souls. And that may feel weird. I thought I've been saved already. Why is it in the future? But notice, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Kept in heaven for you. So though we will be saved in the future, there's no question about if it's going to happen, if we can have confidence in it, if it's done already. No, it is done, but we await the fullness of its benefits. We await the fullness of it. So our inheritance is salvation from sin and death in hell. Salvation from bad things, but it's also to a living hope. This inheritance and hope is living, it's active, it's the new redeemed life that we have in Christ. We have it now and we await its fullness in eternity. So Peter wants us to know that we have this now and it will come in its fullness in the future. It won't go back it's imperishable, right? It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. I think that everything in our life almost goes bad, doesn't it? Right? Our food goes bad. Our clothes, they'll get old. Uh, our bodies go bad. 
right? Anyone dealing with any back injuries right now? I know that that came for me in my life much sooner than I would have thought. Our, our bodies go bad. Everything, right, will go bad in life. But not this. Not our spiritual inheritance if we are in Christ. We have this hope that is undefiled, unfading, imperishable. Another question we need to ask is, how can we be certain that this hope is for real? He said, we have it now, and it's coming in its fullness, but how can I know? How can I be certain? And Peter's answer is that this is all accomplished through, do you see it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter wants us to know that this promise of new life is accomplished through Jesus' crucifixion in his new life, in his resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, we can know with certainty that death has been conquered. It is powerless over Jesus' people. There's nothing that can keep Jesus in the grave. And that means if you're born again, if you're made alive through faith in Christ, you have that hope of life too. You have that hope of new life because Jesus conquered the grave on the third day. We just spent a lot of time, I hope, the past few weeks thinking about Christmas, right? Thinking about the meaning of Jesus' coming to this earth as a baby, that God did not leave us to fend for ourselves, but he came to this earth through his son. And that is good news, right? But it's such good news because of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came, in his own words, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christmas is great news because of the cross. And the cross is great news because Jesus didn't stay dead. That he was buried, that he rose again, actually. You see, Christianity is rooted through and through in the historical claim of the resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're not sure, right, about all this Jesus stuff. You're not really sure if what we're even doing here is worthwhile. You wonder if God is real, if Jesus is who he said he was, I would invite you to look into the historical claim of the resurrection of Jesus, because Peter says this is, this is how it happens. This is where we get this living hope. It might not answer every question that you have, but I hope that it begins to show you, maybe it unlocks some things, that Jesus is actually who He says he was. Our faith isn't rooted in just feeling. The living hope that we have is the actual power of Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus died, that he was really buried, the tomb was really found empty, and it was empty because Jesus wasn't there anymore, because he rose again. And this most important historical fact changes everything. For our lives. 
So what do we do with all this? Right? Sounds great. We have this hope, but what do we do? How does this relate in our lives? Peter says, in this, you rejoice. You rejoice. And he's actually not telling his readers to rejoice. He's acknowledging that they already are. These Christians from ancient Turkey that Peter was writing to really rejoiced in their spiritual inheritance. This salvation that they had in Christ was so valuable to them that they rejoiced despite their own personal suffering, despite their own personal trials that they faced. We read about these in in verse 6. We read that they rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what does Peter even mean by this? What, do, what does various trials entail? We get a pretty, a pretty good picture of this when we look at the rest of the book. It might surprise you. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. For righteousness' sake. Suffer for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5 For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead and few verses later in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This letter was actually written before the intense period of uh, persecution in the early church from Emperor Nero that you may have heard about. And this checks out with the verses that we just read, doesn't it? We're not reading about them giving up their lives for the gospel, but all these trials seem to relate around the social pressures for identification with Jesus. The threat facing these believers were things like being made fun of, being rejected, being left out because they refused to participate in sinful Gentile parties and practices. It was insults hurled at them for the name of Christ. Their trials were the cost of living as exiles in their own culture. This is what missionaries today will call soft persecution. They weren't living for Christ with their lives on the line, not yet at least, but they were living for Christ with their reputations on the line, with their social networks on the line, with their cultural clout on the line. 
How much do you resonate with that in Santa Cruz in 2023? Maybe in a day, 2024. I think that the trials that we face in our culture for being Christians are incredibly similar to what these Christians in Turkey were facing 2,000 years ago. We're not going to be burned at the stake for our faith in Christ, not, not now at least. But we might have some bridges burned for the sake of Christ. We may look into this letter thinking, uh, we aren't, we're not really facing the same things, but we really are facing a lot of similar things. So why does it have to be this way? Why do we have to face trials? Peter says in verse 6, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That means that there are times in the sovereign mind of God that trials are what? Necessary. Meaning, we have to go through them. Maybe you've asked if trials are really necessary. Like if God, you could have come up with another way to test our faith. For us to prove that we are genuine, to refine us. It can be hard for us to see why these things in our life are necessary. Maybe you see them as a counterpoint to faith, right? How could God be good and me have to face this thing because of him in my life? Or maybe we still hold to faith despite our trials, but it's despite our trials, right? It's not along with. But Peter clearly tells us that some trials are necessary. That means they have a point, right? They're doing something. Our secular society wants us to believe that any trying or hard thing that we face in life is random. It has no meaning. It's just luck of the draw. But what hope is there in that? If we're going to go through something, don't you want it to mean something? <laughs> like, don't you want some purpose at the end of it, that something good will come out of it? For the Christian, trials because of Jesus are not random. They are not pointless. They are doing something. They are necessary. And they're necessary for this reason, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as a result of this, I want to encourage you to face your trials with hope and with purpose. With hope and with purpose. I want you to face uh, your trials with hope because the darkness of trials cannot keep the light out of our hope. Notice the duration that Peter gives for our trials. For a little while, right? For a little while. But our hope is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven, right? You see the difference? We face trials for a little while, but our hope is for forever. So we face our trials for hope because we know that our inheritance is not only longer than our trials, but it's greater than our trials. But let's also face our trials 
with purpose. There is an end goal to our trials. And it is that our faith may be proven to be real, to be firm, to be rock solid, and not just to prove, but also to grow and to refine as fire refines gold. And all this, Peter says, results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. This is the point of our trials. I want to encourage you to remember that, to remember that. But I also want to encourage you to commit yourself to encouraging each other with that. You know what's worse than losing a friendship because you refuse to affirm or participate in sin? Doing that alone, right? Doing that by yourself with no one seeing, with no one supporting you. So let's pay attention to each other. Let's see each other's trials and encourage them in that. That can be one of the most buoying things is to know there are people around you, friends who see you in the midst of a trial, who are with you, who are checking in on you. Man, that's, it's just so encouraging. So let's do that for each other. Right? As members, this is something that we've covenanted together to do, right? to bear each other's burdens. So finally, we see hope's outcome in verse 8 through 9. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's reminding the church that not seeing Jesus, either during his lifetime or even now, doesn't keep us from love or belief in him. And this seeing image is in stark opposition to our trials, right? How easy it is for us to see our trials in the midst of it, right? It's all we can think about. It's right there. We feel it deep down in our bones, But Jesus, whom we can't see, how hard is it to recognize his reality in the midst of trial? But Peter is trying to show us, you don't see him, but you still believe. You don't see him, but you still love him. So the question is, what will we believe? Will we believe the lies that our trials will tell us about God? That he doesn't care that he's not for us, that he doesn't notice, or will we choose to see Jesus and believe Jesus and love Jesus? I love that song that we sang this morning, Jesus is better, right? In all my trials, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. That's a, that's a prayer we need to ask of God, that he would make our hearts believe that he is better than our trials, better than our pain that sometimes make us want um, to jump ship, to trust him less. And this belief turns into joy that is inexpressible 
and filled with glory. There's a sense in which trials actually increase our joy. If you look at verse 6, in this we rejoice, and then we hear about how trials grow our faith, and now we rejoice with joy that is what? Inexpressible, filled with glory. The, The joy actually increases, doesn't it? It's because the testing of our faith refines our faith, and when our faith is refined, our joy abounds. Our joy in our maker. It becomes something we can't even express with words. Maybe you've felt that before. You can't even put words to what you're feeling. This is what Peter is talking about. And in this, we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So verses 8 and 9 are the never-ending conclusion of a born-again life which has found its living hope in Jesus. Inexpressible, glorious joy of a miraculously redeemed life. And we can allow our trials, the hard things in life, to kind of veer us off, right? Or we can see them as the very thing that refine us, that um, lead us to the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And that's going to require trust, right? So wherever you're at this morning, you know Jesus, whether you do not, I encourage you to trust him. Trust him in our wonderful joy and salvation in the gospel and the resurrection and also in the trials knowing that all together they lead to this glorious outcome an eternal inheritance the salvation of our souls let's pray